Penn and, and welcome everybody here tonight. I just want to take a couple of seconds um, before I turn the microphone over to the people who that you really came here to see. Um, the first, a couple, to make a couple of announcements. One is to invite everyone who would be interested in learning more about Penn, becoming a member of Penn, or a, a friend of Penn to visit Penn's website, which is www.penn.org. And I can't, as long as I have a microphone in my hand, I can't um, let an opportunity go by uh, to, to acknowledge really two groups of people um, uh, that, I, that, that I have really the privilege of, of, of observing their impact on this planet on a regular basis, every, every week to week and day to day. The, the first group, and, and I, I do this on behalf of Penn, is the Children's Book Committee, uh, which is really, I think, the essential committee in Penn. It's a group of professional writers uh, who volunteer their time to advance children's literature and to protect freedom of expression and uh, the right of children's authors to express themselves and the right of young people to access uh, diverse literature. Just to give you one example of um, how I get to uh, learn of their tremendous accomplishments quietly day to day, Penn gives an award every year, a First Amendment award, to somebody in the United States who has done something significant and courageous to defend the First Amendment as it applies to the written word. And this year's recipient was a librarian from Texas who um, took really quite a tr tremendously courageous stand in her own community to defend a young adult book called It's Perfectly Normal. Um, and when I, when the judges selected her, it was my honor to call her and tell her she had received this, was going to receive this award, uh, which is worth $25,000. And, you know, so I was, you know, I get myself all geared up to, you know, give her 20, to announce 25000 and sort of plug Penn. And I announce 25000 and she shrieks, and I start to go into my <laughs> spiel about who Penn is. And she says, I know Penn. You know, the Penn Children's Book Committee was one of the first groups to come to my defense. When this, book, when, I, when this book was challenged and I made it clear that I wasn't going to be let, it pu let it be pulled from the library shelves. And really week after week and month after month, you know, the, I'm sort of, the Freedom to Write Committee is called to a kind of First Amendment accident scene. And we get there, <laughs> you know, we get there and the Children's Book Committee has already been there, you know. Um, and, and so it, it, th this event tonight is, is one of their many great achievements, and I just wanted to take the opportunity to acknowledge that. The other is that I'm a father of a 12-year-old boy, and I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge everybody on this panel and all of your colleagues who are writing for young adults. Um, it, it, I think all parents of, of young adults are confounded by the complicated questions that this very panel is here to discuss. And it's really a, a remarkable credit to everybody who's here on the panel and all of their colleagues that, um, that I am able to, to go to sleep at night not having to worry so much about how to articulate and, and guide my son through these things because my son reads avidly. And it's because of the literature that he reads that he's often the one who's able to articulate to me um, and navigate for me the way through crises in the contemporary world. Um, and it's, I just want to acknowledge um, and pay tribute to the great writing that's being done for young adults and to testify to the tremendous impact that it's having 
in, in broadening the emotional vocabulary of young people. And I'll shut up now. And um, I want to turn the microphone over to Vera, Vera Williams of the Children's Book Committee. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Larry. All right, well, uh, I just also want to welcome you all here. It's wonderful to see you all again. We've had a number of these panels, and many people have come to a lot of them, or perhaps all of them. And we are just really happy to be together with you. Uh, to uh, talk about the kind of uh, writing we do from, and we've talked about it from many different uh, angles at our different panels. Uh, this one we, uh, we picked uh, after discussing a lot what we would have this year, be partly because, a lot because this, uh, this aspect of, uh, of children's literature has been discussed and written about in various children's uh, um, in re uh, the, the magazines that review children's literature. It has been discussed all over the country among librarians and all. Uh, and uh, we thought it, it was very much in the air and we wanted to talk about it too and, and, and hear about it from, from writers. Uh, the, uh, before I introduce Wendy Lamb and we go off into our panel, I just want to invoke the audience that isn't here. Uh, Larry, uh, Larry mentioned them. It's the readers, right? <laughs> of course, we also are the readers of these books, but the very big audience who at this very moment may be lying on their stomachs on the floor or, or curled up in awkward positions, never with enough light, right? Uh, uh, eating and lying in the potato chips they've crunched and with music playing, <laughs> who are reading these books and uh, uh, talking about about the books that are so important to this really big and wonderful population of readers is uh, to me very worthwhile uh, because we all can remember we were those readers and we read then uh, about life uh, with uh, an intensity and uh, an appetite that we perhaps never would have again in our lives and so it's really wonderful to have the writers of those books here to talk about it, and I'm going to turn this over to Wendy Lamb, uh, uh, Wendy La who is the editor of Wendy Lamb Books at Random House, and also the editor of several people on our panel, and uh, she will be uh, the moderator for this, what I look forward to as a lively evening, okay? So this goes. The way this will happen is um, I'll speak briefly and everyone on the panel will speak for 10 minutes and then we'll have a discussion up here and then we'll open the floor to questions. Um, so I'll introduce everyone first and let me, I'll do it alphabetically, not in order of importance, that's for sure. Who knows who's the most important? This is an amazing panel. I mean, there are so many awards among these people, I cannot take the time to mention them all. So I'm sorry that I cannot do that, but we all know who they are and how important and wonderful they are. So to begin with Christopher Paul Curtis, when you look at Mr. Curtis, you're looking at a man who's been hugged by every librarian in America. <laughs> and loved it. <laughs> The Watsons go to Birmingham, 1963, and Bud Not Buddy, his second book, have won many awards, among them the Newbery Honor for the Watsons and the Newbery for Bud. 
and his next book will be a young adult novel called Bucking the Sarge. Patricia Riley Giff is a former teacher and reading specialist who has written over 60 books, among them the groundbreaking series for early readers called The Polk Street School, which is still going strong. And she's still teaching people the joy of learning to read and to read, including me. And her most recent book is uh, Pictures of Hollis Woods, which was a Newbery honor this year. And she's also the author of other award-winning books, among them Lily's Crossing, which was a Newbery honor. And then Walter Dean Myers is the author of 70 books for young readers, hey. <laughs> um, he, has won, he has written fiction, picture books, biography, nonfiction. Um, he's won three Newbery honors. He's won the Coretta Scott King Award in honor so many times, I just think they should call it the Walter Award. <laughs> and Monster is a book that's very well known recently that perhaps is going to come up tonight, which was a National Book Award finalist, a Coretta Scott King honor, and was the first winner of the Michael L. Prince Award for the Best Young Adult Novel of the Year. And Joyce Carol Oates is, after a dazzling, well, part of her dazzling career as a writer, she has a huge career as an, a writer for adults, and her books have won the National Book Award and the Penn Malamud Award for the short story. She is the Roger S. Berland Distinguished Professor of the Humanities at Princeton. But let's talk about what people are really going to remember Joyce Carol Oates for, which is her children's books, right? <laughs> so I'd like to welcome you to this cult. <laughs> um, her first book for young readers was the young adult novel, Big Mouth, Ugly Girl. And just now they've released, Harper and Rose released her short story collection, Small Avalanches. And the up, her next book will be a young adult called Freaky Green Eyes. And then last, you will meet Adam Rapp. You may have seen the terrific article in yesterday's art section about Adam and his play. Um, his play, Stone Cold Dead Serious, which is running uh, for the next two weeks at the Chasama Theater in Manhattan, but it's sold out unless you get to know Adam really well. <laughs> his prize-winning plays have been produced widely in America as well as London, and his, adults, his novels for young adult readers are Missing the Piano, The Buffalo Tree, Little Chicago, uh, The Copper Elephant, and the forthcoming 33 Snowfish. And he's also the bartender at his play in the lobby. <laughs> so. Um, Fran uh, Manushkin on the committee just asked me to talk briefly about the editor's point of view on this topic, so I'll try to be quick. Um, it's amazing. Here, it's, you know, here we are again discussing this, right? It's timely, yet it's also the oldest topic in our business. We talk about it again and again. What is appropriate for young readers? And the big question is, you know, really, children, of course, know that life is scary. Look at nursery rhymes and fairy tales, the first things they come to know. Yet we can never relax with this, what we give them. And one of the great challenges is knowing when a child is ready for what book. And for this, we generally do, publishers rely on adults. We rely on teachers, librarians, and parents, the people who know the children best. But one of the problems is, no matter what we do, you cannot control how a child gets access to a book. And that is always a risk. Because a child who's not ready for a really tough book is going to have a very different experience reading that book than the reader hoped a child would have. And that, as a publisher, is something I think about. Whenever I've turned down a book, that was, had edgy material, it's mostly because it was so much about shock value that I couldn't get to know the character. That got in the way from the start. And I suppose some people would call that gratuitous, but that is mostly what makes me resist. I just love young adult fiction. 
um, because we can be more open-ended, we can be more realistic. And I just want to ask you, how many people here would like to go back and relive their adolescence? <laughs> ah, one. But are you, a, are you a writer for young adults? Do you write for young adults? No, I'm just a big kid. Yeah, because you know, I do think it's interesting that most people who write for young adults were writing because they say, I'm, I was an outsider and I'm writing for the kid. Who, I wished I'd had a book like this when I was a kid. It's just interesting how nobody who had a happy high school experience <laughs> seems to be drawn to write for this age group. But, um, but the interesting place, of course, adolescence is a bleak time. It's a bleak place. And I think actually a lot of the readers are more comfortable with the bleak material than we are. They, they can handle it better. Um, I'd, I would love to publish any book that recognizes the complexity of life and that allows for weakness and ambiguity in the hero and an open ending. Not all the threads have to be tied up. Not all the solutions are the ones the reader wanted. The ending does not have to be happy. But the story should demonstrate the human urge to move forward, to persevere, and to endure. And kids have an endless appetite, as we know, for stories about survival. This is the message they seek. How? 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 I think it's important that the reader finish a book with the sense of that the characters believe in themselves, that they will survive somehow and struggle on to a better situation, a less painful situation. That is what life is going to ask of them. Sometimes the world of the story is so harsh that the character must find this sense in a private and interior place. And I feel that a book that ends by destroying that in the main character and ends the book that way. That is not a book for children. I think that is a very bleak book for adults. So let me turn this over to, are we speaking in alphabetical order? Who wants to start? <laughs> are you looking at me? No. <laughs> You're looking at me. All right, let's start with Patricia Rolligan. <laughs> Wouldn't you know C is looking at G. <laughs> All, right. All right, I'll start and get it over with. Listen to the subject of these books, please. Lynn's friend David murders his parents and later kills himself. Another one, Alex is arrested for selling drugs to an undercover agent. Matt must deal with the death of his mother and sister who are killed by a drunk driver. Weevil is betrayed by an adult she thought was a friend but whose affection suggested sexual activity. Janet is raped by a disturbed boy leading to knowledge of her lesbian relationship to Peggy. Tough subjects, new and shocking, sound like TV dramas made to titillate, not at all. And while I, why I mention these, all were written for adolescents between the period 1978 and 1985, 18 to 25 years ago. All were written by children's authors whose names are not only recognizable, but in some cases beloved. And certainly there are many here tonight who know the authors and the books that I've mentioned. So for many years, maybe as far back as the book was written, um, writers for young people haven't flinched from talking about subjects that are difficult or challenging. But are there subjects that are actually taboo? I have to tell you some of my own experience. A couple of years in Texas, a librarian came up to me and said, it's a shame about Lily's Crossing. And I, who had just received the Newberry Honor for Lily, 
was understandably upset, and she said, you had to mention the damn piano. I said, but Lily said that deep inside her head, and she said if Graham even knew about it, she would be in trouble. The lady from Texas said, I cannot recommend this book. And just yesterday, um, a librarian looked at a new book of mine called Pictures of Hollis Woods. It has the most wonderful cover. It's a pair of legs, um, and you just see the girl's shorts. I, I do know that Sister Georgina, when I was in high school, would have had a fit, <laughs> because we were not allowed to call them legs. We had to call them limbs. However, <laughs> the librarian told me that she hadn't bought the book because just from the cover, she knew there must be issues. <laughs> My dear friend, Pat Hermes, had an invitation to a library rescinded when it was discovered that she had used the term mosquito ass. I was so glad I didn't use that. <laughs> but anyway, my world, as you can imagine from what I've just said, is really the world of the young reader. Um, the uh, kids who are middle grade readers or picture book readers. And um, that's a very different world from the world of the young adult reader. But I want to tell you just a little bit about the kids I write for. I was a reading teacher for 20 years working with troubled kids. Um, there were two who committed murder. Ugandi, who uh, died of, alcoholic, of alcohol poisoning at age 29. There was Felita when I read a story about a cat having nine lives, threw the cat out the window to see if that were true, and her aunt heated the iron and put it on her back. So I worked with kids who really knew about almost everything there is to know in the world. Surprisingly enough, those kids didn't want to read serious books. They wanted to read books that they could laugh over. But quite the opposite, and not surprising, they loved to write about dark and dismal topics. And when I told them they could write anything they wanted, their stories were filled with cruelty and violence and hair-raising language. But now, what about the other kids I see? At third grade, fourth grade, there are kids across the country who have only the vaguest knowledge of menstruation or intercourse, whose vocabulary doesn't even include the word stupid, because they've been taught it's a bad word. So what are writers who write for the young to do? What is appropriate for middle grade and the young, young adult reader? Appropriate, a word we could argue about from here till next year. Amy Kelman at the Carnegie Library says, there is no topic with the exception of porno, uh, graphic material, or uh, erotica. Um, nothing is barred as long as it is handled in a sensitive way. And I think that's about as true as we can get. Another librarian, Marianne Sicardi at Norwalk College in Connecticut says, anything goes as long as there's a redeeming quality in the main character of the story. And I think that's true too, which brings me to hope.
because here certainly is the difference between books written for children and books written for adults. And I would just like to mention tonight two books because they deal with tough subjects. The first one, Nine Candles, is about a little boy, Raymond, whose mother is in prison. And he goes to the prison on his seventh birthday. The guard has to light the candles on his cake because his mother's not allowed to use the matches. And um, in the end, um, he goes to bed. He's sad. He's angry. But I close my eyes, he says, and dream my one dream. Mama is carrying a cake, a chocolate cake, my favorite cake in the whole world. She remembered it's my birthday cake, and Mama puts it down in front of me. I look up at her and smile, and I take a deep breath and blow out nine candles. So there is hope. He knows there is going to be an end to that, and that Mama's going to come home in two years. As, as hard as it is, it's written for very young children. And just the other one I want to mention is what Jamie saw, which won a Newbery uh, Honor Award. Listen. When Jamie saw him throw the baby, saw Van throw the little baby, saw Van throw his little sister Nin, when Jamie saw Van throw his baby sister Nin, then they moved. And a moment before, it wasn't the crying that woke him up. It was some other sound. What was it? Something else that made him spring up in bed, lean back on his elbows, and open his eyes wide, just in time to see Van reach into the crib and grab Nin and throw her, fire her across the room like a missile, like a bullet, like a shooting star, like a football. No, like nothing Jamie had ever seen before. Can it get any more difficult than this? But I promise you, if you read this book, it is a book of such courage and such hope and such triumph that you will agree, I think, that there isn't much you can't do for children if you do it in a sensitive way. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I don't have anything sort of formally prepared, but one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is what the world is going through right now, what kids are up against, um, the questions that they have. Um, I personally, I think I'm still kind of in this weird arrested development. Um, I'm 34. I still have a problem doing my laundry. Um, I don't pay my bills on time. There's a lot um, <coughs> in some silly way that I feel like I'm writing as a kid still in a lot of ways. Um, for me, the process of writing young adult literature is actually st still discovering the world through a 16-year-old's eyes or a 12-year-old's eyes. And I get to s rediscover it every time I enter another character. And I largely write first-person novels. And so for me, it's about becoming a 13-year-old boy again or an 11-year-old girl, which is really interesting. Um, <laughs> it's, that's the, where I approach from. Um, a couple of years ago, I had uh, uh, the distinct 
privilege of being at the, uh, the O'Neill Playwrights Conference in Waterford, Connecticut when Lloyd Richards was still the artistic director there. And it was my first play that I had written. It was called Ghosts in the Cottonwoods. And I didn't know what it was to be a playwright at all. I started out as a novelist. I wrote a, a young adult novel that was published in 1994 called Missing the Piano. I had, was working in publishing and I had no idea what that process was. I was, I was very naive about it all. And it was my first experience among theater people. And Lloyd Richards said something r really profound that I'll never forget that I equate to writing for young adults, which is the definition of a playwright. He said a playwright is somebody at 7.30 on a Tuesday night and, and you're walking down the street, any, and you are walking down the street and you feel this tap on your shoulder. It's about 7.30 and you turn around and this person says, I have something really, really important to say and it's happening in about 30 minutes and it costs about $45 and you gotta get on this subway or this bus and you gotta go because it's really important. And that's something that, um, and that was his definition of what it was to be a playwright, um, that it, it's that important that you have to hunt people down. I equate that to being a young adult writer because I had, I had another experience where I visited a, a, a high school in Chicago and it was largely, um, the class I visited was largely populated by ESL um, uh, Polish students in this uh, northern suburb of Chicago, right, up, right north of the city. For most of them, it was the first, they were forced to read my novel, The Buffalo Tree, which is sort of seasoned with some, um, it's got a hip hop sort of vibe in it. And um, for most of those kids, it was the first book they had ever read. And I said, what else do you do? I, I was so curious as to what these kids were doing with their time, because they weren't reading, obviously. And uh, one kid said, I watch VH1, and one kid said, I play PlayStation 2, and one kid said, I watch MTV, um, and so for me, the task of, of sharing stories um, is in a similar way what that, what that playwright definition is. I'm trying to like find these kids. I want to give them a reason to want to read. Um, I was not a big reader. I was, uh, I was not a big student. I picked up a book for the first time when I was 15, and it was The Catcher in the Rye, and it was the first book I ever read like 40 pages of and then someone stole it from my room. I went to a military academy and uh, I lost the book. It was stolen for, for, off my bed when I went to the bathroom. And I finally got it back later and it was the first book I ever finished. And I just remember how exhilarating it was to identify with this punk rock character, this kid who was so disillusioned and had, who was so confused and, and so um, angry. And it was the first time I'd ever read anything where I felt like I had a friend. And that was, for me, um, my entry point into being a reader and, in, and falling in love with stories. Um, I, I, don't know, I don't know why there is this gatekeeper thing that happens that we hear about as authors. Um, I think if you write the truth, and the truth might be what I see at Tompkins Square Park sometimes, which is like, a 12-year-old boy watching his father play basketball while he's smoking his father's marijuana. That might be the truth. The truth might be, um, you know, a, a, a child murdering another child. The truth might be, um, in Flint, Michigan, this kid, this little kid walks into his classroom and shoots another seven-year-old. I think that 
kids should not be protected from the truth, and the truth is bleak sometimes, and the truth is, is difficult, I think we should do a really good job to tell those stories really well. And I feel my responsibility is to um, create an opportunity for them to feel like they are being taken care of as a storyteller. Um, I feel like a lot of people criticize my stuff because they feel it's bleak, it's not hopeful. One of the most important things to me is that in my work that there's a feeling that people can still converge toward love and that people, despite the bleak world, despite having stuff to be up against, whether it's a, you know, a low income housing or you know, going through puberty in a weird way or you know, having a venereal disease or AIDS or whatever it is that they're up against, which is so many things to be up against for young adults. Um, I feel like it's really important in my work at least that there is some kind of search for love or to be loved or to belong. And that's what I'm most interested in. And um, I think that's what's profoundly interesting to young adults is that they're identifying with the tough subject matter, but that they're tr actually, that because it's truthful that it is hopeful in some way. And that that's that that juxtaposition is for me the most important part of my work, and um, you know I've struggled with oh I don't want to do this anymore I don't want to write for young adults I feel like they're not getting the books they're not in the bookstore buying the books their parents are or their babysitter is or their teachers are keeping them from reading the books, um, but every once in a while you get a letter or you get uh, a kid who you meet at the school and you see how it affected them in some small way, whether it's a glance or they drew a picture of it, of what their cover might be. And that keeps me very, very interested and I continue to want to fight through the gatekeepers and to try to continue to, to reach that. And books like Carolyn Coman's books and, and all their books and you know, like uh, Norma Fox Mazur's books and Chris Crutcher's books and those books are, um, they're going to last a long time, you know, and, and, and a lot of them are tough and bleak, and I, and I applaud that they're tough and bleak, and that's the truth of what's going on right now. Um, that's pretty much what I have to say. Um, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't, I'm babbling, but uh, thank you. We're doing an, an awful lot of pretending in this country. We're doing a lot of pretending as if it's a one society. And we are trying to ignore all of the, the quote, others. And we're trying to identify with a small mythical group. And a small mythical group does things the, the right way, <laughs> to goes to the right, right schools, and they have the right, the right values. Um, but it, it's simply not true. Uh, in a city like New York, which is, which is a wonderful city, the best city in the country, uh, you have a dropout rate that is so devastating. You have, uh, in some schools, the dropout rate, rate is like 75, 85%. You have um, people passing the regents uh, exams, the five regents exams, 
I think was up to 16%, uh, up from 14, no? Uh, so you're getting in this country this tremendous divide. Uh, 1982, Ishmael Reed said that the new, that, that this country will be divided not by um, uh, religion, not by race, but by those who, who are part of the system and those, the growing population that is not in the system. And this is what this controversy is all about. What this controversy is all about is this tremendous pretense that our kids, that are people, or this very small group of people. We, we have, in the prisons, we have more prisoners in this country. You know, there was a, a recent uh, justice system report that said that 28% of all uh, black males will spend some time in prison. 28%, that's a devastating figure, 28%. If, if, if the men are in prisons, who are the children? What is happening? And we're, we're pretending that this doesn't happen. This is a country where only 40% of the people, if 40% of the people, will vote in a general election. And we argue about a few hanging chads someplace. Now, I go to, when I go to the prisons, prisons are extremely grim. They are extremely grim. Many of them look like high schools. You, know, <laughs> you, you go to the prison and you see all of these young people in prisons. Uh, I subscribe to prison magazines. I'm looking at this, this <coughs> huge population uh, of people. And they're, they're grim and it's depressing. You know these people have families. That's depressing. Where the depression ends for me is when I can recognize the humanity of the prisoner that I, with whom I'm speaking. When I can recognize that humanity, then, then I say, yes, I am a human, we are human beings. And this is an increasingly important concept for, for uh, a child who is the, the, the son of, of someone who is in prison, or the daughter, or when you have your, your uncles or your cousins. Okay. What has to be reestablished for that child is that humanity. Uh, once I went to a school in Brooklyn, walked through the metal, the metal detector, <laughs> you know, had to show my I, ID, and I was there, it, it was a predominantly black school, and so I, I was there with my white knight uniform on, uh, telling these children, you always should read these good black books. And um, Some of the kids said they did, they did not want to read black books. So I said, I'm shocked, you know, what have you. And I began to talk to these kids, and I found out that why they didn't want to read most of the black books 
was because it did not celebrate their, their humanity. There were books that, that pitied them, that took a liberal attitude of, oh, aren't these kids wonderful? But they wanted their own humanity. And when they found a book that celebrated their humanity, they embraced the books. And this is what the kids need. I, I've been told, by someone did an article, a nasty little article about me, and, in which they said, well, you know, kids don't want to read this kind of book. And I'm saying, well, how the hell do you know that kids don't want to read this kind of book? Because you walk up to a child and you say, uh, do you want to read this kind of a book? <laughs> and the, the child will say, no. <laughs> but then why then am I getting these letters? Why do these letters come? Why did I, why did I get, do I get letters from um, uh, detention houses and thousands upon thousands of children? Why? Because they do want to read books that celebrate their humanity. And what I think that we need to do as writers is to celebrate the humanity of, of everyone in our, in our, our society. And if some kid in Martinsburg, West Virginia, nice little city, I was born there, uh, uh, doesn't want to read the book because they feel that it mentions Kleenex, which I was told was a no-no, you shouldn't mention brand names, among other things, the, the gatekeepers. Well, that's, that's okay, that's all right. Because what I want to do is to reach out to the children who are not being reached, who don't turn on the television and find themselves there. I want to, I want to be able to reach these children. And I want, I want them to say, yes, this is me. And it's okay to be me. It's okay to be me. Uh, I remember in, in the ninth grade, we had to memorize, memorize uh, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. It was a long poem, <laughs> but we had to memorize this, this poem. And um, I remember at the end of the poem where the, after this mariner has told his, this horrible tale, you know, he killed the old albatross and all kinds of bad things happened to him. The people who were listening to him left. They were a sadder but a wiser man. And this is what we do <coughs> with literature. What we do, we, we give people hope, not because the ending is upbeat, but because their humanity is recognized. And they understand sometimes for the first time that even though they are, they have AIDS or they're in jail, or that life looks very bad for them, they are still part of the human condition.
I have discovered, I do a lot of school visits, and I've discovered that children are much more sophisticated than we as adults give them credit for. I've also got an 11-year-old daughter, and so I'm kind of torn about this. Um, and it's, it's kind of come to me through my own writing. Um, I was in a school once, and I usually when I read uh, from the Watson School to Birmingham, I read the first chapter, and it's a kind of a light, funny chapter. And these kids, these were fourth graders, and they set me up, and they said, read chapter six. So I take it out the book. And uh, originally when I wrote the book, I didn't think of it as a book for children. I thought of it as an adult book that was narrated by a 10-year-old. But then when I sent it to Wendy, she told me this was a children's book, so. <laughs> so we, uh, what we did, we changed a lot of the language. Uh, the, there's a 13-year-old boy who is officially a teenage juvenile delinquent, and he spoke as, as a juvenile delinquent speaks, as the ones that I grew up with. So we kind of changed things and made more suggestions of the language, but I did keep certain language in there. Um, nothing more than hell, damn, and ass. That was it. So I was at this school, and these kids very attentively sat there and read this chapter. So I okay, okay, I'm going to start to read it. And um, <laughs> it's, it's funny because I, I don't think there should be limitations on anything that is written. But as I started to read this, <laughs> and I got to the part where the, the younger brother says to the older brother, he wants to hang out with the older brother, so he says, let's do some cussing together. And the older brother's just totally disgusted and says, you know, kiss my ass. I got to the part with these fourth graders looking at me, and I said, and then Byron said, <laughs> and I couldn't get it out. And the kid said, go ahead, we've already heard it. Say it. <laughs> but it, it made me think. It made me stop and think. And, um, one of the things that Pat and I were talking about earlier was a lot of times when you're doing a reading, you go through and you say, oh, I wish I'd done this differently or I wish I hadn't done that. And I don't know if my perspective is changing because I do have an 11-year-old daughter. Uh, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older. Um, I, I really don't know if it's just uh, having sympathy for teachers actually being in the classroom and <laughs> them having to do this. But uh, I, I think it's really hard to, to shock or to uh, surprise children. I, I think that, uh, but of course, there are things that are age appropriate. And it, it's a fine line to walk. And I'm glad to be on this committee, this panel, so I can learn some of the things that are. Uh, but this, this sophistication that I'm speaking of that kids have is spread everywhere. Uh, last year, I went to Kenya with Ashley Bryan, the author. And we had gone to this school. Uh, it was a private school, Kenyan school. It's kind of the elite Kenyan school. And I usually speak to kids who are in fifth, sixth grade. For some reason, they had me with second graders. So, and the Kenyan children were wonderful. They were polite. You'd walk into the classroom. They'd all stand up. They wouldn't sit down until you told them to. And I didn't know if I'd be able to talk to American kids again. <laughs> but. I started to read my book, and uh, one of the things that Bud says in the books is shucks. He says shucks a lot. So I thought I could look up and I could see that they weren't getting it. I was stopping a lot and explaining different things to them, and I saw that shucks wasn't getting through. So I said shucks is something that we say 
in the United States if you're frustrated, if things aren't going the way you want them to go? I said, that must be something that you say. And one of the little second graders raised his hand and said, we say, oh shit. <laughs> but but uh, it, it is a serious subject. It is uh, something that is, um, I, I've, I'm, my first two books were books for middle readers, which is about 10, 11, 12. My uh, third book that I'm working on is for young adults. And I find it much more liberating to write for that age group. There are so many different things that you can put into the book. Uh, it's much more difficult. I, a lot of times I'm asked, when are you going to write a real book, an adult book? But I think, it's, I think the younger you're writing, the more difficult it is, because you do have to. You have to use different kinds of tricks. And there are things that are appropriate and things that aren't appropriate. I'm very happy to be on this distinguished panel. I feel like a little bit of an outsider, though, since obviously I've done most of my writing in, in what we call adult fiction. But I was so drawn to, to writing uh, children's books, and I've done, uh, I've done two children's books and two young adult novels now. And it's such an exciting um, atmosphere, and there's a feeling a very different feeling, I guess I could talk about that maybe later if, if anyone is interested, the distinction between writing for, supposedly writing for adults, quote unquote, and writing for children. It's really more like a spectrum because I think some of the great classics in our literature are ambiguous works like Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, which I first read when I was about eight or nine years old, and I just, but it was my, really my heart was pierced by that. I just identified so with Alice. I was a farm girl growing up in a kind of poor area in upstate New York. I had not the slightest idea that Alice was a British girl of a certain economic level, really <laughs> upper middle class. I just sort of identified with her so passionately. And I was so impressed that Alice had a certain measure of courage and integrity. And she was really a tough little girl in contrast to the way, the way I felt myself, sort of watery and wavery and not nearly so distinct. And then when I was um, a little older, I was reading like the Black Stallion series and, and novels like that with which I, uh, again, very violently and passionately and, and with all my heart identified. I think when you're younger, there's almost not a barrier between yourself and what you're reading. You just so flow into the work and so some years later, we're just sort of whipping ahead, fast forward. I was approached by a friend, Daniel Halpern, who, who uh, runs Echo Press, and they were going to start a children's series. In fact, I turned out to be the only person who wrote in the series. Then I began reading children's books, which I actually had, uh, I had not looked at for all the intervening decades and just felt I'd been missing so much. The world of children's books, as it's distinct from young adult, is a world of such magic and beauty, just surpassing beauty and imagination and originality. The, the paintings and drawings, the original work is just really stunning for somebody who's been steeped at that time in 20th century irony, you know, literary <laughs> irony, where I can't really write. I, from, I have sort of a tragic view of history. I mean, who, could, who would not have a tragic view of history? 
but I, in, when I'm writing adult fiction, I have to take a certain tone. I feel that to be true to that reality, irony is maybe the mode of discourse. But with children's literature, in a different realm, children have not yet been baptized or cursed by history. They live in essentially an ahistorical world. This is small children. My first book is called Come Meet Muffin, about my own cat. It was shamelessly sentimental. <laughs> and Muffin is in, in the book, and little Lily Halpern is in, is in the book. And Mark Graham, the artist, did wonderful paintings, original work. So I was, I was taken from a world, almost monochromatic world of irony and catapulted into this magical world in which my text was very small at the bottom of the page and the, and the art was very, very beautiful. And in that world, animals can think and animals can talk and animals can reason just as well, if not better than human beings. And children relate with animals as if they were equals which you don't at all find in, a, in adult fiction. And I think there's a deep spiritual wisdom in that, that the relationship between the species, the human species and animal species. We're very close to animals, but we don't know how to talk about it without being sentimental as adults. But with children's literature, it's no problem. You just go right in and the animals, I say, they can think and they can talk and they make decisions. And, they, and, and the happy ending is not only allowed, but absolutely hoped for. So my, my two children's books, one is coming out next, um, next fall. It's called Who Has Seen Little Raynard? And that's about a, a little cat. And all these cats are my cats. I'm, I'm just embarrassed that I'm sounding so, and being so obviously sentimental. But I guarantee they have happy endings. We, we don't have happy endings in life, but when you're writing for children from the age of zero to eight, you might as well be happy. Then we, because that's it, you know. <coughs> then we move to the young adult world, and as I've said to many people, particularly to, to women, many of us feel in our hearts we're about 14 years old. We feel like typical adolescents are very insecure. We really wonder what we look like. We're afraid to know what we look like. We don't know what to wear in the morning. These questions, which uh, you know, bedeviled me in junior high school and high school, I would not have guessed would still be with me so many decades later, you know. And so I think just the feeling of adolescence is one that we all share in. It's a time of irreverence. Adolescents are very funny. They're very uh, quick to understand hypocrisy and cut through a lot of nonsense. I've been working for many years with older adolescents. I shouldn't call them that because they think of themselves as young as young men and young women. I'm at Princeton University. <laughs> but they, they have all the best qualities of adolescence, I think, by which we mean questioning authority, being funny, a, a extraordinary energy and imagination, and above all, idealism. They work very hard at Princeton, as they do in many other universities and colleges, and they're idealistic. They're growing up at the same time that we're living in, and you'd think they'd be somewhat cynical and exhausted the way many of us feel, but no. They're really very idealistic. So when I write for young adults, I'm so excited. I feel that I can create characters with whom I identify who are not burdened by the typical responsibilities of, an, of being an adult or middle-aged. You're not burdened by history. 
My, my students at Princeton definitely change. They, they evolve within a few months. I can see them changing. They're still young enough between the ages of 18 and 21. They're still changing. Still more if someone's 14 or 15 or 16. So I feel very optimistic about that age group. When you're writing mainstream or literary fiction for adults, you have to be more, I think, realistic about the capacity or incapacity for change. As many people are bedeviled by the past. They're living in a context, historical context, that they can't escape that readily. But for a 14-year-old, 15, 16-year-old, and younger, that, that is really not the case at all. So when I go to young adult fiction and children's fiction, when I read it and when I write it, I feel I'm in a, a much more aerated and capacious atmosphere, and that there's a spiritual component to it, even though we don't write about religion, Nonetheless, there's, we suffuse the characters with this degree of humanity and also the animals with which they interact. Thank you. Uh, this is a question for the whole panel. Um, when we talk about offering hope at the end of a book, what do we mean by hope? Can you talk about it specifically about a book of yours? Me? Yeah. Well, uh, I will say this. I, I don't know whether this is, is the proper answer to give you, but I just finished a book, um, and it was already in galleys, and my son read it. And uh, he said, when he got to the end, well, you just can't do this, obviously, Mother. I said, what do you mean I did it? He said, you have managed to kill two of the people off in the last uh, paragraph? I don't think so. So I called Wendy, and I said, I can't kill those two people off. So she said, well, we'll change the galleys. And so um, sometimes you add hope at the very end because your reader demands it. <laughs> Like it or not. Oh, in relationship to our work, right? Hmm? In relationship to our work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, have a, I have a novel called Little Chicago at the end. This, this young kid who's had a tough time buys a gun and he, he drops it in this abandoned car in a field and he walks into the woods and it's a snow, during a snowstorm and it's sort of set up the idea that um, in the, in the novel that if you follow a deer far enough into the woods that it will lead you to heaven and practically his actions his hard actions are he buys a gun he drops it into an abandoned car and he walks into the woods um, seems like it's uh, he's gonna be annihilated in some way um, and I got a lot of reaction to that from people like oh you're killing this poor kid and um, and for me I was I thought he was really seeking something beautiful in this, in this uh, act of walking into the woods. And I never thought of it as being uh, bleak or hopeless or anything like that. So um, in terms of the idea of hope, like that he's seeking something or somebody, no matter how bleak the circumstances are, that somebody is moving towards something um, is what I'm interested in. Uh, I, I think that there's a saccharine idea that, you know, Oh, he's gonna win the game, or he's gonna get a hug at the end. And yeah, I don't really, I don't like those kind of endings. I don't, I like endings that are a little more ambiguous and a little more haunted and um, a little more layered. And I think um, 
as a reader, I appreciate that more. Um, so I, I try to uh, tend to stay away from um, the more obvious endings. I have a book uh, just out, uh, The Dream Bearer, and boy has a very troubled relationship with his father. His father is um, very close to being uh, a mental case. And at the end, the father is still very close to being a mental case. Uh, but the boy has a bit more understanding of his father. And in that understanding uh, of, of, of his father, um, I, I see there is the possibility of them coming together. And again, you know, I, no hugs at the ends in my books, even though Bob Lipside thinks I'm too protective of, of my characters. <laughs> but I, what I, I love my characters, but if I can give them more understanding, uh, and, and, and I think that the audience I have in mind, again, most of the audience I have in mind will never get to Princeton. No, we never get to Princeton. No. And, they, and, and, and their history, they, they are trapped in, the, in the, the immediate history of their immediate environment. Um, I think, uh, as Walter said, you do become involved with your characters. I, when I was writing my first book, I would read the writer and writer's digest, and I'd read different articles. And I remember what, thinking one of them was really strange, and the woman said that at the end of her book, she felt very depressed because she felt like she'd lost a friend, that somehow that she was very involved with this character. Every day she'd go and she'd write about what she had to say, and then it was over at the end of the book. Uh, in The Watsons Go to Birmingham, as a writer, you go through different scenarios. You run different things. Uh, there's a it, part of it takes place at a bombing of a church like the 16th Street Baptist Church. And uh, I originally wrote it with the little girl being one of the children who was killed. But that just seemed to sap all the hope in the book. After that, there was nothing that could be done. Uh, it, it just made the book too terrible, I felt. And, um, and also, I'd given it to my wife. And as she got up to that part, she said, if you've killed that girl. <laughs> so I, I think that uh, there, there does have to be some kind of element of hope. And, um, and I, I don't think a saccharine ending is the equivalent of hope. I think that uh, um, a lot of times I get letters from kids that say, you know, you left us hanging, bro. What happened at the end? They want to know what, what, what happened. But I, I think that there does have to be some type of upward motion of the character at the end that you can't, uh, and, and as an author, I'd feel too bad if I left some poor character hanging. Well, as I said a few minutes ago, I, I tend to have a tragic sense of life in a, in a very general philosophical way, but when I, when I write for young adults, I don't really think that's appropriate. And I, I would never write anything that didn't have a good deal of hope. I try to have an infusion of some humor for one thing, if you're writing as, a, as a, an adolescent, you get to look at adults and you see how pre pretentious we are and how silly we are with our posturings and our, our 
so-called uh, adult mature fan fantasies, and young people sort of see through that, and I think that allows for a certain measure of humor that's very, very uh, healthy and, and very liberating. But I've, I've written relatively few works, of course, for young adults. I've written many short stories that deal with adolescents, particularly adolescent girls. And when I was assembling them, I was working with Tara Wyckham, my wonderful editor at HarperCollins, who's, who's in, the, in this room. And she, Tara had invited me to, to assemble some of my short stories I've written over a period of decades that deal with, with uh, adolescents. So I arranged them. I had quite a few of them. And I started arranging them sort of unconsciously in terms of which had happy endings, which had somewhat um, irresolute but probably fairly positive endings, and those that had bleak or negative endings in which there was no hope or it was actual death. And I was doing this sort of unconsciously and definitely into my collection, Small Avalanches. There were many, many more that, that end strongly and positively, and then just a few that are perhaps like cautionary tales, like where are you going, where have you been, which ends with a girl probably going to be raped and, and murdered and just sort of disappearing back into the elements from which she came. But most of the book has this positive tone to it. And I read, when I've given readings, which is just a few times, I read the title story, Small Avalanches, in which a girl is pursued by a man. He's a mo obviously a molester. She's not really sure. You know, she's only about 13 years old and a little naive. But she gets the better of him, and, he's, and she's sort of leading him up a, a small mountain or a very steep hill, and he's falling down. And finally, she's really defeated him. And there's such a feeling of happiness in reading it, and the audience, especially the women, are really you know, sort of agreeing with this, that I think that literature allows us these possibilities of hope that are not really sentimental or saccharine, but really quite viable, very plausible. Many stories do end happily. And we have many more different kinds of students, for instance, at Princeton than one might think in terms of Princeton's history. Up until just a couple decades ago, there were no women at Princeton. And now there's quite a wide variety, of, quite a diversity of ethnic backgrounds and various kinds of sexes, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is for anybody who wants to answer it, but can you think of an example of a book by someone else that is a brilliant example of this kind of hope? That's something you, you think, oh, what a wonderful way they ended that book. And I love Loser by Jerry Spinelli. Mm -hmm. I like all of his books because I think they're hopeful. And again, not saccharine. We're not looking for that. But there is a triumph in some children's books that just, um, as you read them, you feel that uplift. And uh, as a child myself reading, wanting to be more like that character, believing that I could do anything if this character could do it. And, uh, and so I'm trying to think of some of the other books. I loved Out of the Dust by Karen Hess. I thought that was a very hopeful book. Um, hard to remember. I'm going to throw the cliche out there, but I, I love um, I love the end of Catch in the Rye because he's sort of stuck watching his little sister go around on a, a merry-go-round with horses, and it's r and it's raining, and he's 
finally come to rest, he's just standing there for the first time where he's actually stopped like running and scrambling away. And I think it's really hopeful in, in a way because he's finally at peace with, with uh, what his journey is and what his destiny is. Um, and I think it's really beautiful that he's watching this pure childhood going around and around and it's in this sort of, um, you know, almost circular perfect motion and he's outside of that now looking on and I've always been, I th I've always f thought that was really beautiful and a lot of people who read it will like, oh, they don't want it to end there but I think it's sort of the perfect ending. Well, I could speak to a, a classic of American literature, Huckleberry Finn, and I'd be so curious to know uh, what age level this book is taught, because it's it's an adult novel at the same time that it was intended to be uh, a boy's book, like Tom like Tom Sawyer. It has much in it that's quite painful and tragic and really overwhelmingly sorrowful, and yet it is triumphant. This word's been used on the panel. I think there's no other word that's quite so appropriate. When, when a character exists the way Huck Finn exists in his language and is so vibrant and so alive and so resilient and again has this wonderful sense of humor that there is a kind of triumph in it though he sees very tragic and dark things yet Huck Finn perseveres and he comes through and the novel uh, in, a, in a sense transcends its own limitations of time and and place and class and history, so that Huckleberry Finn is like Don Quixote in the sense that he's a character who transcends the, the finite and becomes maybe part of our, our complete heritage and we identify with him very well. I wonder if there's, does anyone see what we could do about the gatekeeper problem that we keep referring to in this business? I mean, do you as writers think how can we get rid of this problem and the people getting in your way for reaching the kids? Invite them all bowling. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I think, I don't know, I wish I knew, I wish I could um, get them all together. You know, I had actually was in Philadelphia a about a month and a half ago and I had this really nice dinner with a bunch of um, librarians and critics who, uh, Candlewick has put out my, my novel, 33 Snowfish, and, and right after that was published, it was at ALA, and, and we were at this really nice little restaurant in, in Philadelphia, and uh, downstairs I met, I think, 12 or 13 librarians who knew my work and who were interested in me or afraid of me or something. And <laughs> I, it was really interesting because when, I, when they all met me, they were kind of like, they thought I was gonna like have a motorcycle and you know, missing teeth and lots of tattoos or something. And uh, one woman said, oh, you look like my son. And, and another woman said, and it was, it was really nice. Like there was some kind of demystification that happened. And um, I think maybe they'll give me better reviews now. You know? So, so I, I hope, you know, I hope that that can continue to happen where they, they maybe reach out to the authors a little more so they they're, we're not so demonized, you know, the envelope pushers aren't so demonized. It happens in theater more. I've been talking to theater critics and having correspondences with them, and it really helps, I think, to, to get through that weird, um, you know, rampart of, you know, mm -hmm. you know, not being able to discuss things. One of the things, and you have writers, for example, the writers in this panel, and you have 
really quality writing, you get past the gatekeepers. Mm. You know, because, you know, what, what we can come at uh, writing from different uh, styles, from different points of views, with different audiences, but if the quality is there, it, it comes through in the book. And I, I think that um, um, some of the books, my most banned book is, uh, I guess, Fallen Angels. And, um, and that's banned because of, of, the, of the language, um, mostly because of the language, sometimes for, because of, of the violence and what have you. But I think the book eventually catches on. And even, even some of the gatekeepers who uh, originally did not like the book uh, have accepted it. One of the things I think that we need maybe to do is, is to find, um, I, I hear people talking about he showed it to his wife, you know, showed it to his son. I, I had one character that I had planned to kill off in that, in that book, Pee Wee, and my wife wouldn't speak to me. And she says, if you kill Pee Wee, we're finished. Uh, I was tempted. I was tempted. <laughs> I think if no one else wants to comment on that, then we'll take questions from the audience. Right. Mm-hmm. True author, right? Selling, selling, selling. So, questions? I, I would like yourself to expand on what you said about children's books being different, feel, think different. You said you speak to later. Well, it's been very, very exciting for me and it's sort of experiment. I'm always experimenting with, with writing. But moving into young adult fiction, first of all, the structure and the style and the language are very different from my usual writing. I think of a young adult novel, and of course, they're all different, obviously. Some are very idiosyncratic and, are, and, are, and quite original and atypical. But generally, I think of them as being rather, rather cinematic. I'm not burdened by the need to contextualize in a historical sense. I don't feel I have to describe things. I mean, I have, I love to describe, actually, and I love to read writers like Dickens or Thomas Hardy. I mean, I love those passages, but if I put them in my, my young adult novel, Tara will just cross them out. And Tara will say, well, this is very nice, Joyce, but it, this, kids don't need to be told what a, what a cafeteria looks like. In a high school, they, they just know. And they basically want, they love dialogue, and they like things to move along. And the chapter ends, and then you move to the next chapter. And it's a forward motion without probably very much looping back, or maybe any, which, uh, the layering and going back in, in adult fiction is very much part of what you're doing. It's, it's, you're doing a number of things simultaneously. But I think with a young adult novel of the kind that I'm interested in, you're moving fluidly and swiftly along, and the characters themselves are going to do the thinking and talking. The author doesn't have to do it. They're going to talk about things. There'll be a, a time maybe near the end of the novel where the characters will talk with one another and they will say what 
you want the reader to know. This is not necessarily the case in, in adult fiction where it may be implied. And adult fiction also is, can be very irresolute and very frustrating and, and annoying. You know, you could read a whole adult novel and say, well, what was that all about? You know, <laughs> the author never exactly got around to saying it. But with the young adult, I feel that it's overt and there's nothing that's uh, coy and uh, there's no subterfuge about it. And then it has an ending that ends right at the ending. You know, that's just like the last sentence and then that's it. So for me, it's a wonderful experience to come from the usual writing that I do. I do a lot of research, maybe historical, and uh, I'm doing different things with my adult fiction that almost kill me and uh, can be very depressing. It's the way I come to Princeton to do my teaching. I feel it's, it's my reward for a certain kind of uh, exhausting and melancholy activity. So to go into young adult fiction, I would never dream of killing off my characters. I'm shocked what I'm hearing here. <laughs> killing off two characters in the final paragraph, I would never do that. <laughs> On the contrary, and I'm likely in the last page to, to give my character a, a puppy. <laughs> could, I, could I just say that the one thing you can do in a children's book, you can kill the parents, but you'd better not kill the pet. Uh, True. That's good. There are, yeah, there are rules, right? right. And one of the rules is get rid of the parents. Right. For younger kids, right, you can't have an adventure. But on the other hand, it seems to me so much YA is driven by toxic parenting of some kind. You know, a lot of the plot is the kid coping with whatever the parents have done to them. So, um, yeah, Margaret? Yeah. Uh, could I just say uh, to that, I think it's the character talking, it's the character acting as you get into the book, you fall in love with this character as the author, uh, or at least you feel some emotion, and after a while you're almost watching this character and you can almost feel when you've gone off, when, when the character does something that that character really wouldn't do and then you have to back up and listen to that character. And I think that uh, as far as authenticity, uh, you do have to get young readers to read before you're finished to, because they, they're the best judges that, of that, I think. They can tell in a minute if something is, is off just a little bit. And I was very fortunate to have my son, uh, who was a great reader, who, who read my books, and I think gave me more of an authentic tone than I normally would have had. If you're if you're passionate, really passionate about the book, if you're going to tap somebody on the shoulder and say, "Come downtown in a half hour," see, if you're that passionate, it's going to be authentic. You know, if if you, I just I read a book recently, in which I didn't believe a word 
that this author wrote. And I think she had no passion for the story. If you have passion for it, if you really believe it, if it's an important story to you, you'll be authentic, I think. For me, it's a, if it keeps me up at night, it feels pretty authentic. If it's, you know, haunting me or making me not sleep, then I know I'm on the right track, which means I gotta take a lot of NyQuil. <laughs> yep. Hi, Rita. I think really that's uh, really the wonder of the of publishing industry. There are so many different kinds of books and so many different kinds of stories uh, that I, I don't think there is one universal thing that kids read that says, well, this is hopeful or this is bleak. There, there are books that say all kinds of things. And as far as um, feeding a lie, I, I, I think that everybody, each author writes what their feeling is. Or, or what they want to express to the children. And um, I don't know if, if you can look at it as, as being a lie. Uh, I, I, each one is an individual act. It's not part of a conspiracy. Or uh, I don't know. I, I think that each that there's enough out there that you can get all different kinds of views and all different kinds of perspectives. You just have a. a really happy panel up here, I guess. <laughs> well, I just want to say a few words. I think there's a confusion between the collective and the, and the personal. Most writers are writing about families, I think, and, and individuals. We're not writing about political situations. And in any time of tragedy and civil unrest and crisis, you'll find families and people who, who are very close and people who are sacrificing for one another. Like during the Depression, it was a time of great sorrow for many people collectively, but yet families, in many cases, were very strong, and there was more of a, maybe in some ways, more of a feeling of, of um, neighborliness during the Depression than there might even be in a time of affluence. 
So I think though, though the larger world may be steeped in blood and the soil has always been steeped in blood or in a, in a, in a collective sense, nonetheless there are individual acts of courage and love and, and friendship and so forth. So I don't see any problem here at all or any, any hypocrisy or any distance. Yeah, I just finished, I know I, I just, I published a book recently about uh, a young, young man going out on a patrol, and he's 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 terrified. He's afraid. He ends the book terrified <laughs> and afraid and tired. Um, so th this is not a hope for world peace. But during this particular book, there was a, he had an opportunity to kill, and he didn't. And that was that that was my hope for mankind. He had an opportunity to kill and he didn't. Um, so and there was no happy ending. No, nobody was cheering, cheering him on. Uh, so I, I don't think there's a dichotomy. You know, I, I don't think, I don't think that's a, it's a problem. Could I just say that I think the young people deserve to have hope. Um, I certainly have lived long enough to have gone through the Second World War as a very frightened child. Um, I have lived through Vietnam and some of the terrible things that have happened. But I feel as a, a writer for young people, a teacher certainly, that children deserve hope and if I ever felt I was lying when I was writing my books, I would never write again. And I believe that the rest of us feel that way too, that what we say, we believe in. Whether it's uh, the same kind of hope that we're talking about, whether we're talking about children moving forward just this little bit, whether we're talking about huge triumphs, I think if we don't give our children hope, then we've really lost this battle. if we go back to the, you know, the happy Hollisters, that would be thrilling, you know, illicit stuff. <laughs> you silence them. Some of the young readers are not here or they don't know what we're saying.
but you didn't talk about what you thought they were, and I'm curious. What things are age appropriate? Um, like I said, I have an 11-year-old daughter, so my opinion on this changes. Um, when I see or I listen to the things that she <coughs> listens to, the, uh, to the, some of the songs and that I feel are totally inappropriate. I don't know where she's getting them from. <laughs> but um, I, it's really hard. I think that's something that you have to, as a parent or a teacher, I don't think you can set hard and fast rules. Um, the language, certain language. Uh, but, but they're exposed to all of that at school. The, I, every swear word in the world is said at elementary schools at recess time. Um, I really don't know. I, I really don't know. It's a really tough decision as to what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate. Um, I, and I, when I was thinking about this, it seems as though things fall into violence and sex are the two things, which, which are the big draws, really. Violence and sex are, the, are what everybody wants. And I, I think that uh, we have to... <laughs> you know, I, I think it's maybe not when, together, Walter. You know, when you feel manipulated, when the reader feels manipulated, that's inappropriate. But that's, of course, a big zone to look at. You know, when, it, when it's false, and you're very aware of the author doing it. Any other questions? Yep. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's Wendy and I, the, the book we're doing now, Bucking the Sarge, uh, it's about a 15-year-old boy who calls his mother the Sarge because she's very tough. And there's one scene where his friend wants to sue Taco Bell, so on a windy day, he asks the Luther to hit him in the head with one of the roofing tiles from Taco Bell so that he can go in and claim, but the people from Taco Bell see them doing it, so they have to run home. You know where I'm going. What? <laughs> so uh, the boy's mother finds out there in the basement, and then she tells uh, her son, she, she said, did he bleed all over the floors downstairs? And the boy said, no. And the mother says to the one boy, you go home. And then she says to her son, you go down there and clean up that basement. It better look like OJ's been through there. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Why are you reacting like that? <laughs> what do you think that meant? Well, I don't So that, that, that's one of the things that Wendy and I are... You know what? To me, that was just not worth it, the joke. It was a funny joke at the moment, but it's not something that should stay in a book that's going to last forever. Right? That was my feeling on it. I think it's true of them. Yeah. You better stand. Can you stand up? Right. Right. But exactly. But I, I don't know. A lot of times when I write, I, I don't think that I'm writing just to the kids. I think a lot of times that adults read the books, teachers, librarians, and there are, there are things that the teachers and librarians aren't going to get, and there are things that the kids might not get. And I don't think that it necessarily uh, should invalidate it. 
but I don't know. I've, I've. One of the things that all of us as readers, we all, I'll wager that we all began reading uh, adult books and classic books way too early. You know? And then we read all these books as, as teenagers and you go back to them as an adult and you, you, see, and you see so much more because as, as a teenager, you didn't know half the things that were going on. And, and, and I think it's okay. I think that's okay. Because uh, when, when I was reading uh, Balzac uh, at 14, you know, I loved Balzac at 14. But then when I read Balzac at, at 34, it was a completely different experience. But it's still, with good literature, you, it, it gets through to, to the heart. I had a, a, a sex scene in Little Chicago where the, the kid who is buying a gun off of his sister's boyfriend has to perform a, he doesn't have enough money to buy this gun, so he performs a sexual act um, to buy the gun. And uh, I use row, row, row your boat as something that he sort of disappears into so that he can get through it, he sort of dissociates and goes out of his body and just starts singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. And um, there was two paragraphs of a little bit of more description that I fought for and ultimately lost. And it probably, you know, realistically was the difference between being a banned book or not a banned book. Um, I regret it. And I, as I continue to get older and wiser and, um, you know, more cantankerous, I will fight for those paragraphs. I have a question for Adam. In that, uh, the, the scene that he talks about, the boy is buying a gun, and the uh, fellow who's selling him the gun originally wanted oral sex, and instead he just ended up with a hand job. Why didn't you go with the oral sex? What was the? Um, because I felt like the kid wouldn't really know how to do it very well. Um, <laughs> It was. It became like a practical. It became like a practical thing, really. And I guess, I sh you know, I'd never really talked about it in the book, but I just figured he would. He was shaking a lot, and his his. He was probably really nervous. So the other guy said, "Just touch it," you know, instead. Yep. Isn't that the editor's job? <laughs> you know, you know I, I write as well as I can, 
uh, as well as I can, and then uh, I'll give it, give it to the, my editor, and hopefully, you know, she'll have, uh, she, she'll see the market for it, she'll, you know, she'll say, well, this is for this particular age group, and hopefully it works. And then she'll come back to me, and then, then the, there's that give and take between um, the writer and the editor. And that's a very useful, useful uh, a process. I, I'm just writing it. I'm, I'm just writing it. I mean, I believe I have a subject. Hopefully, that I, I, I fervently believe in it. Believe in, it. and you know, I, I did. I did fallen angels. There's lots of cursing in that. And what happened when, when I went to the army? The first thing they do is to curse at you, and they're separating you from civilian life, and. That, that, that cursing becomes so much a part of the military experience that you know you, you, you do it all the time. And people are cursing at you all the time, and you're cursing at the at the enemy, and you're cursing at everybody, um, and that becomes part. My editor said at the time said, "Oh, can't, we can't have the cursing," and I said, "I can't write the book. You can't write the book without the language." Uh, and eventually, that battle I won, but a few of the words I took out. <laughs> and she, she was right. She was she was right on that, you know. But uh. I think the story takes off, and that you really uh, personally, I don't have control of of uh, whether or not what I'm saying is appropriate for age. I divide my writing into two parts. I do a kind of a creative part. And where I just let anything come that comes, and then I go back and do a definite part where I'm trying to beat it into the shape of a story. And uh, I've learned not to confuse the two. And when I'm doing the creative part, uh, a lot of times what I write won't even make it into the book, but it, it's, it's part of the development of it. And so I, I don't think of uh, whether or not it's... You know,